the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Opinions expressed in the following program may not reflect those of Salem Media of Colorado or its sponsors. This is Life in Colorado, a radio news magazine about the issues, events, and the unique life we live in the Centennial State. Keep on Life in Colorado. Welcome to another edition of Life in Colorado. I'm your host, Maria Oliver. One thing that totally got by us last week, it was the 142nd birthday of Colorado. Don't know how I I slipped on that one, but definitely we did. So just wanted to say happy birthday, Colorado. You don't look a day over 100. Happy birthday! Today, we are lucky enough to have with us a representative from Historic Denver, the nonprofit organization that helps out with the rehabilitation and restoration in our area. We're lucky enough to have Executive Director Annie Levinsky with us. Thank you so much, Miss Annie, for joining us. We appreciate your time. Yeah, thank you for having me. This is fun. Just going a, a little bit step back, how did you get involved with Historic Denver? Mm-hmm. Well, I am a Denver native. I grew up here in the central part of the city, and I went to three Denver public historic schools and um, lots of other community institutions that were older buildings. So I feel like it was sort of always a part of me. Um, And then after graduating from college, I looked for a way to really use history in my career, um, and pretty soon after that got an internship uh, with Historic Denver and our flagship property, the Molly Brown House Museum. So I have been with the organization for 15 years this summer um, and really just love the work that I do. You, you mentioned the museum, but what other historic properties are, are you or your organization involved with? Yeah, well, we uh, here at Historic Denver are involved with a number of properties uh, at any given time. We're always working on a whole range of things from our advocacy work um, to our direct rehabilitation projects. So right now we have a number of issues related to landscapes, um, including City Park, uh, the 16th Street Mall, and Red Rocks. um, And then also working with neighborhood groups on ways that they can preserve and promote their heritage. So we're working with a group um, along River Drive in Jefferson Park, uh, with a group in La Alma Lincoln Park, uh, a group down on South Pearl Street in the Commercial District, and how to perhaps preserve some of the buildings and dynamic that exists there. Uh, And then really exciting, in just a couple weeks, we'll have the first of two public hearings for a new historic district um, called the Vassar Bungalows Historic District, which is a small row of six homes on Vassar Street between South Sherman and South Lincoln. Um, that are really special and unique. So we're excited to see that uh, start to come to fruition. Okay. Now, uh, keeping in mind that that Denver is one of the most rapidly growing cities in the entire U.S., uh, why is preserving historic properties important to the community? 
Well, we're hearing from more people now than really ever before about how important it is to them to preserve the places that remind them that they're home, that root our community during that period of great change, and that really uh, give us a sense of unique identity so that Denver doesn't feel like any city USA, but feels really special to our region and to our communities. Um, So, like I said, people, I think, are more interested in that than ever before, and we think it's more important than before that we preserve these places. Uh, Fortunately, in Denver, we did preserve a lot over the course of our organization's 50-year history, um, from the Lower Downtown Historic District to a number of other neighborhoods. Uh, And now our challenge is to make sure that we remain committed to those places and that we also identify um, new places that have meaning for our community. Now, I I noticed uh, you were telling me a little bit about how you have input from the community. So there are actual individuals other than staff and and volunteers who who are involved in these processes? Uh, Yes, we have lots of partners. Um, Of course, we have a board of trustees that are people from the community who represent um, lots of different um, constituencies and geographic locations in our city. Um, but we also engage with neighborhood groups directly, um, and that can take the form of um, neighborhood organizations um, or groups of neighbors who can apply to us for funds from our action fund to help them implement a project that helps preserve their community's history. Uh, we also work with community institutions uh, like churches or schools or other civic buildings um, to help them secure money for restoration, and so those are another form of partnership. And then we do just regular outreach work. Uh, We have a citywide survey project called Discover Denver where we go out to neighborhoods and try to identify places that are important to those areas. And so we always host um, open house meetings and conversations with community members where they can share what is special to them about the place that they live. Hmm. So it sounds to me like community involvement isn't just something that is. It sounds like it's something that you reach out to get. Is that correct? We do try to do a proactive uh, outreach, and that's really always been, I think, the bread and butter of historic preservation is that it's a really a grassroots movement. Um, it comes from the people and from our neighborhoods and um, community organizations that see meaning and value in place and want to see those things preserved and adapted and, and made new for each generation. Um, and so we are fortunate to have a lot of wonderful partners, and then we work hard to make sure that we are um, developing relationships really across the whole city uh, and in recent years, that's been a really particular focus of ours is to make sure that we are having a presence in a lot of different communities across our city, whether they're uh, further away from downtown or close in. Now, you mentioned that you've been with Historic Denver for 15 years and that you're a Colorado native. So not to put you on the spot, but what are some of your favorite moments or achievements that you've had with your group? Um, Well, you know, I have been fortunate to see some great things here in in recent years. Um, We just finished a major restoration of our very own Molly Brown House Museum, uh, which is a special place to me and I think so many others. So it's a special moment, for example, to see our stained glass windows restored this spring and put back into the house. Um, Really a beautiful opportunity to see something come to fruition. Um, You know, other recent successes is we were um, successful in uh, advocating for the preservation and designation of the Emily Griffith Opportunity School building in downtown, which um, is no longer the school. The school moved, but the building, um, the old building will remain and will be rehabilitated and reused for something new, and we're glad to see that. Uh, as well as the successful designation of some new historic districts, um, like the Packard Hill Historic District, and then of course the um, you know the tremendous success of places like Union Station and that restoration, which our organization has been advocating for for Union Station for more than 20 years, um, well before the vision that finally came to be. Um, 
was ever part of the plan. And so it's really exciting to see preservation leading the way that way. You know, going back further into our organization's history, because we've been around since 1970, mm-hmm. um, certainly we're very proud of, you know, first saving the Molly Brown House Museum, but also being a leader in designating the Lower Downtown Historic District. Um, at the time that that was done in the 1980s, it was sort of a forgotten part of town. A lot of people didn't think it was going to uh, pan out well. They worried uh, that all the real estate values would plummet and no one would ever know what to do with the buildings. And, of course, the, the opposite happened, and it's now really a poster child nationally for how historic preservation can lead the way to revitalization. And so we're really proud of that work. You're a successful sales pro. You're making good money. So what's missing? Do you need something bigger than commissions? Salem Media Group in Denver is seeking an integrated marketing consultant who shares our sense of mission and wants to grow with a great company. We need an experienced, uncompromising self-starter who understands selling, marketing, and ad strategies for digital and broadcast. Join our team and fuel that fire in your belly as you work with existing clients and develop new business in the Denver metro. Go to SalemMedia.com careers for more. And we're back. This is Life in Colorado. I'm your host, Maria Oliver. We're speaking with Annie Levinsky. She's the executive director of Historic Denver. Now, one of Historic Denver's major crown jewels or or major projects was the Molly Brown House. And that posed the question, who is Molly Brown? Let's take a closer look. The sensationalized Molly Brown of Hollywood fame was truly unsinkable in amazing ways. Margaret Tobin was born in 1867 and lived through decades of reform that she greatly influenced. She first witnessed labor struggles working in a factory and then in the mining community of Leadville, where she met her husband, J.J. Brown, an accomplished mining engineer. During the 1893 silver collapse, J.J. discovered gold, making them instant millionaires and allowing them to purchase a mansion in Denver's Tony Capitol Hill neighborhood. From there, Margaret launched numerous social reforms and helped create the nation's first juvenile court system. Established in Eastern and European high society, Margaret traveled extensively. As a passenger on the ill-fated Titanic, she gained national acclaim for assisting hundreds of survivors. She used the celebrity to shed light on causes near to her heart, such as labor rights and women's suffrage. She even ran for U.S. Senate in 1914, but withdrew to set up medical facilities in France during World War I. When women won the vote in 1920, Margaret turned to acting in New York, where she died in 1932 at age 65. Today, her legacy reveals a woman of extraordinary spirit who embodied the issues of her times and the power of individual action. And we're back. Thank you so much, Ms. Levinsky, for staying with us. So let's talk a little bit more about Molly Brown. Sure. Um, Well, the Molly Brown House um, is special in Denver because it is tied to such a national story of the tragedy of the Titanic. And people are always surprised at how this landlocked city can have such a direct tie to one of our, you know, most infamous sea tragedies. But uh, Molly Brown, whose real name was actually Margaret Tobin Brown, uh, was on the Titanic and survived that sinking. Um, But really more important than that is that she was a real advocate for a lot of important issues of her time. Um, She was a suffragist. 
She was um, a supporter of labor reform. She actually ran for both state and national political office in the years before women could vote at the national level. Yeah. Colorado women could vote, but nationally they couldn't still, and she was um, really out there on the forefront. Um, so she's this wonderful figure that's really inspirational, and her home here in Denver was threatened with um, potential demolition um, in the late 1960s, as was happening all across Capitol Hill. Uh, and our organization formed to purchase the house from the owner at the time and to open it as a museum. So it has been open as a museum for 48 years, um, and we see about 50,000 people a year uh, come through the house. Uh, she and her husband, J.J., made their fortune in gold mining, so it's a very um, also quintessential Colorado story in that way, uh, and we're able to talk about you know, what this place was like when they moved here and how it changed during her lifetime, and then, of course, how it still fits into our city story um, as being a real beacon of um, of our identity, you know, people from all around the world come to see it. Not to mention just being a, a beacon for change, but something of that nature starting at that time in history, a female that, yeah. Right. She's quite a, quite a bold personality, and we're very lucky to have someone with such an inspiring and really deep and complicated story that we can keep um, sharing and telling. Given, as I mentioned, just the, the balance between growth and historic preservation, what is Historic Denver's vision for rehabilitation and or restoration? Yeah, well, I mean, our goal is always to find ways to keep the buildings that matter to our community, both architecturally and visually, but also culturally, you know, the places that have stories that are important to us or where important things happen, to really keep those places vibrant and active. Um, buildings need to have uses in order to survive and to have meaning. And so we always are looking for ways that we can uh, reinvigorate places um, and, and keep them in active use. It isn't our goal that all historic buildings be house museums, even though we own and love our own house museum. Um, but, you know, historic buildings aren't sealed in amber, and, and that isn't our goal. Our goal is that they evolve over time, but that they do it in a way that they remain intact, they re- continue to have their, you know, integrity, and they can be identified as, as the places that our community has loved and has found to be important. This is Life in Colorado. We're speaking with Executive Director Annie Levinsky. She's with Historic Denver. Hey, Richard, how are we looking on time? Oh, we're doing great on time. Okay. Do we have time for a quick break? Absolutely. All righty. So we're going to take a quick break, and we'll get right back with Annie. Give us one moment. We first opened about 10 years ago. We were, we were small, just a few of us. But it was exciting. I always dreamt of having my own business. It was kind of slow at first, but things started picking up. We had big plans. But in our wildest dreams, we never, never thought we'd have this much work. Yeah, with so many businesses caught off guard by the storm, Reed Waste Management has never been busier. What will become of your business after a disaster? Nearly two-thirds of businesses aren't prepared for an emergency, and 40% of businesses that experience a disaster never recover. Make an emergency plan now before it's too late. For a free online tool that helps you develop an emergency plan to keep your business up and running should disaster strike, visit ready.gov forward slash business. Brought to you by the Federal Emergency Management Agency, the American Red Cross, and the Ad Council. And we're back. This is Life in Colorado. I'm your host, Maria Oliver. We're speaking with Annie Levinsky. She's the executive director of Historic Denver. With the Colorado Day happening uh, last week, I think it was the 142nd 
anniversary last week. Uh, I hear that you got some really good news about some grants. We did. We did. We uh, here in Colorado are lucky to have a program called the Colorado State Historical Fund, which is funded out of proceeds from limited stakes gaming up in our mountain towns. Um, But some of those proceeds are given out statewide in the form of historic preservation grants. And our organization partners with other institutions, nonprofits, to um, secure those grants. And so we got great news on three projects. They all happen to be um, church-type structures. Um, The People's Presbyterian Church, which is still an active congregation in the Skyland neighborhood, so just north of City Park, um, is a great historically African-American church, a really um, uh, congregation with a really fascinating history, and we will be using the funds to help them restore their um, front porch. Their their church actually has a great front porch, which is, which is quite unique, um, and restore that so that they can continue to use the building actively and, and hopefully to be an anchor in that community, which is experiencing a lot of change. Um, and they can, t- they can still help tell the story of the really strong African-American community that was in um, the neighborhood surrounding that church for um, really the last um, 75 years. Uh, we also got a grant for the 6th Avenue um, United Church of Christ, which is um, down technically on the north side of the Cherry Creek neighborhood. It's just oh. along 6th Avenue in East Denver. Um, that building will be undergoing restoration of their stained glass windows. Um, and these aren't windows that are purely religious. These are windows that actually acknowledge the folks who donated and helped them build their building okay. um, back 100 years ago, also in the 1920s. Both of those church buildings are from that era. Um, And I think we have for a long time had a relationship with what we call sacred landmarks, um, former churches or current churches or um, former synagogues or current synagogues, because they not only serve their congregations, but they tend to be landmarks in our community regardless of whether you actually attend religious services. And they also often provide um, social services, um, social gathering spaces. And so both of those buildings are examples of, yes, they serve their congregations, but they do a whole lot more than that. And we We think that's another great value of preserving them so they can continue to serve our wider community, whether it's from hosting soup kitchens or hosting um, music events and gathering spaces. Um, And then the third grant we got is for a former church. It's actually the Eisenhower Chapel. It was one of four chapels on the old Lowry Air Force Base, and it is the only of the four that um, still stands. And it is a wood-sided church, which... Might not be unique in other parts of the country, but here in Denver, we don't have a lot of wooden structures. Um, most of our buildings were built with brick, um, so it's really unique in that sense. And it's also it's called the Eisenhower Chapel because it is where uh, President Eisenhower and First Lady Eisenhower, who was from Denver, she grew up here, um, would attend services when they were in Colorado for the summers during his presidency. Oh, that's lovely. Here we go for the tough question. Are you ready? Sure. <laughs> How do you balance community concerns for historic preservation and and hanging on to history with realistic fiscal budgeting goals? Um, Well, for starters, it's actually a bit of a misconception that preservation isn't economically viable or realistic. Um, Preservation really pays for itself in a lot of ways. There have been a lot of studies that show, and one of those studies here in Colorado has been done for more than 20 years, documenting over time with an every five-year update just how valuable preservation is to our communities. Um, for every $1 million spent on preservation in Colorado, it leads to more than a million and three of additional spending and 14 new jobs, increased household income, and probably uh, important to our elected officials, it generates state and local um, tax revenue. So we've really seen preservation pay for itself in a lot of ways, um, other things that it can do, and that it's a, re- it's a good investment for our communities and for property owners. It's a heritage tourism generator. Uh, it can contribute to our local sustainability goals. You know, the greenest building is the one that's already built. 
Uh, and there's actually new evidence and science showing that preservation is actually a, a public health benefit. Um, people are happier, feel better, have stronger mental health outcomes when they are in places that are stimulating to them visually and culturally, um, and, and historic buildings can do that. So I think the question is really, what is the cost of not preserving parts of our city and not holding on to those um, really important benefits? We do have some tools in Colorado, like the State Historic Preservation Tax Credit, that can be used to help a property owner repair their building if they're a for-profit owner. Hmm. And then we have the grant program that I just mentioned for nonprofit and, and building owners. So both of those are intended to help offset any additional costs. Um, but as I said, we've seen, for example, with the preservation tax credits, that the um, local and state governments actually end up reaping the benefits. They put the outlay in and the credits, but the economic impact of those rehabilitations puts actual revenue back into the coffers more than, than was spent. Just a kind of a general question. Oh, it's not a general question. It's kind of a hard one. As a, a Colorado native, as an executive director, what are your hopes for historic preservation in our area? I hope that preservation continues to be important to Denver. We have a great legacy of having been a national leader um, starting in the 1970s. Of course, like many cities, we demolished a lot in the 1960s um, in the era of um, the first era of urban renewal. But since that time, Denver has been a leader and really embraced preservation as part of our growth and change strategy, whether it was protecting Lodo before the baseball stadium was built or protecting 43 of our buildings in downtown Denver and on more than 50 of our residential neighborhoods. Preservation has been embraced here as a strategy to keep our city vibrant. And I hope that that continues um, to be a part of our, our culture. Uh, our historic neighborhoods are really sort of the backbone of what has made Denver a great place to live and, uh, and provided opportunity of preserving lots of different kinds of homes, whether it's the big mansions of Capitol Hill or the smaller homes of a Baker Historic District. It gives us a lot of uh, range and diversity. So, you know, it's my hope that we continue to embrace all that preservation can bring to our city and so that our future um, residents. You know, I have young children, and I'm sure, um, you know, many people feel this way. You want to make sure that those folks will recognize the city that we grew up in and feel connected to it uh, in a way that helps remind us all that we're sort of stewards of this place. Okay. Now, uh, in my research, I discovered uh, on your website, Larimer Square was on the, or maybe still is, on the 11th most endangered list. What does that mean? Well, Larimer Square is our city's very first historic district, the first one ever designated. Uh, it was designated in 1971, uh, and it's really been a poster child for how historic preservation can be economically viable and can lead to great outcomes for a city and a community. You know, it's one of our most beloved places that people, you know, love to go down and visit, whether they live close in or far further away in the suburbs. Um, now, Larimer Square has been facing some new challenges. Uh, the buildings have some needs, and uh, there's a development proposal um, that's on hold now that would um, change its character, and so there's just been a lot of public debate about um, what will happen to Larimer Square in the future. Okay, so we'll definitely stay tuned. Was there anything specific that you wanted to add about Historic Denver or anything that you would like the community to know? You know, I guess I just add, we talked about the importance of, of grassroots and the community being engaged in our work, and we are a membership-based organization. So if people are interested in this kind of work, they're interested in preserving places, you know, of course we welcome members um, and getting involved with us. You know, it's a very um, 
not an expensive thing to do, and there's also other ways to stay in touch with us, whether it's on Facebook or through our website. Um, so I think there are so many people in Denver who really care about the city and this place, and we hope that they will um, embrace the work that we do as well. Okay, now here's my random question that I just ask everybody because I just do. Uh, what does life in Colorado mean to you? So I think what life in Colorado has meant to me is that it is a very um, connected place. We're very connected to our natural environment. I always think of Denver as a big sky city. You know, you can always sort of feel where you are because you can see the sky or you can see the mountains. Um, so I think um, very open feeling of place. Uh, and I think that's led to a fairly open culture. Um, so life in Colorado, I think, is about that open dynamic, about being in a, in a big space and being with lots of different kinds of people. I mean, we we are a city and a state that has had lots of newcomers for many decades, not just recently. Hmm. Um, and I think that has helped us generate the, uh, an open culture. Be home tomorrow, mama, don't you cry. Be home tomorrow, mama, don't you cry. Got to kiss the lonesome Texas blues goodbye. Well, I'm going out to Denver, see if I can find. Yeah, I'm going out to Denver, see if I can find. That loving Colorado girl of mine That loving Colorado girl of mine That loving Colorado girl of mine, oh mine That loving And that does it for another edition of Life in Colorado. Richard Robertson is our producer. I'm your host, Maria Oliver, and this is Life in Colorado. If you have questions or comments about today's program, please call 303-750-5687. Life in Colorado is a public affairs presentation of Salem Media of Colorado.